Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. There are approximately 8 million ED visits for chest pain per year in the United States. Recognizing that 10 to 20% of these that are true acute coronary syndromes remain a challenge. And still, despite our best efforts, 2 to 5% of patients with true ACS are inappropriately discharged from our EDs, a situation no patient or physician wants to be in. Enter the decision instrument, and there are several out there, to try to help identify low-risk patients who may be safely discharged. One of the best-known ones, the heart score, is the subject of today's podcast, in which we interview Dr. Shannon Fernando about his recent AEM article entitled, Prognostic Accuracy of the Heart Score for Prediction of Major Adverse Cardiac Events in Patients Presenting with Chest Pain, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. 30 studies are included in this analysis. Shannon Fernando is a fifth-year resident in emergency medicine and a fellow in critical care medicine at the University of Ottawa. He has been incredibly productive during his career thus far, having published over 30 papers and three book chapters over the course of his residency. His research interests include emergency department sepsis detection and management, ED ICU transition of care, critical illness in the geriatric population and health services, and he has received numerous awards for research, including the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Junior Investigator Award in both 2017 and 2018, and the CAEP Top Resident Research Abstract Award in 2017 and 2018. He's being interviewed today by Dr. Zach Lipsman, a PGY-4 in emergency medicine here at Brown, and we are pleased to have him with us. Hi, Dr. Fernando. Thanks for coming to uh, the AEM podcast. Appreciate having you here. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a real privilege to be on. Well, let's get right into it. The paper that uh, you've published recently is one that I think is going to be pretty relevant for emergency providers. With respect to the heart score, you know that that's something that we see and use just about every single day. Uh, for those folks who might not be familiar with it, would you mind giving us a, a little bit of a background on the heart score, what it is, and how it's used? Yeah, absolutely. So the heart score uh, is a prognostic score. So what that means is, uh, you know, I, I'm fortunate to work here in Ottawa, and as I'm sure many listeners in emergency medicine are aware, this is kind of considered by many to be kind of the birthplace of clinical decision instruments in emergency medicine, the work by Dr. Steele and Dr. Perry. And uh, so I've, I've been well-versed in clinical decision instruments, and this is a prognostic uh, decision instrument. So contrary to the more of the tools that you guys might be familiar with, like the Ottawa ankle rules, the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rules, the Canadian CT head rules, that are supposed to arrive at a diagnosis, this is meant to answer a question of what outcome a patient would reach in a short term. So you shouldn't be using the heart score to diagnose somebody with acute coronary syndrome or ACS. I mean, the way we diagnose that is largely based on clinical uh, gestalt history, you know, troponin, ECG. What the heart score does is it answers that question of, if I have this patient here in front of me, and presumably I don't think that they're having an acute coronary syndrome, what's the likelihood that they're going to have a major adverse cardiac event in the short term? Because it helps with the probably the hardest decision we make in emergency medicine every day, which is disposition. Uh, you know, most, people, most clinicians in the hospital have the back of keeping somebody in the hospital. But in emergency medicine, if you're saying that somebody doesn't have something, you're sending them home. And so that's the hardest decision we make. So that helps with the decision of if this patient is at risk of a short-term adverse outcome, cardiac outcome, 
I have to either A, admit them to hospital for further testing, or B, organize testing down the road. And while it would be easy to do that in, for most patients, and I guess depending on where you work in North America and around the world, you know, as high as 90% of chest pain patients will get admitted and worked up, there are issues with that. And the issues largely pertain to resources and costs. Obviously, ordering all these kind of tests on all these patients, you know, as treadmill tests and angiograms are expensive. But we're learning now that this actually has adverse events on the patients themselves. So the patient might experience an adverse event from having all this testing. And so you really want to be judicious in, in identifying, uh, you know, which patient is going to need further testing. And so that's where the heart score comes in. And it's this tool that we've used uh, and I think has rose to become the most popular uh, tool for this purpose. And it's a, a tool that looks at five factors, H-E-A-R-T, history, electrocardiogram, uh, age, risk factors, uh, and troponin. And each of those five parameters is scored either zero, one, or two points. And then you add up the five parameters and that's, that's your heart score. And a low risk heart score is said to be uh, three or less. So zero, one, two, or three. And that's a patient believed to be at low risk uh, of future major adverse cardiac events. And, and the thinking is, well, if you identify the patient as being at low risk, then they probably don't need uh, really invasive or non-invasive testing in the short term. So that's uh, really what the heart score should be used for and why it was uh, created. And, and I think probably the major reason that it's applied uh, in emergency medicine today. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, you had mentioned major adverse cardiovascular events on a couple of occasions there. Would you mind just telling us, I guess, from a research standpoint, what that outcome is exactly? Yeah. So a, a major adverse cardiac event is effectively a, a, what we call a composite outcome in research. It's any of the following things, and this is how it's generally defined, is either death, a myocardial infarction, or revascularization. So either the patient went for PCI or cabbage. So if they met any of those outcomes, that's thought to be a MACE event uh, or a one of the composite outcomes. Now, several of the studies that we looked at included other things in that definition, but that is the most common uh, reason or most common definition of MACE, those four things. Um, and composite outcomes are used usually when you're dealing with a, a very common presentation, chest pain, and a relatively rare outcome, so mortality or myocardial infarction. Um, it allows you, from a research perspective, to involve less patients in your study because you'll have more patients reach the outcome if you use multiple different possible outcomes. Uh, and it allows you to derive a clinical decision instrument much easier than if you're waiting for something rare. So that's, that's how MACE is largely defined in the literature. And of course, you know, it's relatively newer, uh, gaining more focus in the emergency literature, but certainly in, in the cardiology literature, uh, that's how, how it's been predominantly mm -hmm. defined. Great. So I think most of us use this score frequently in the emergency department, and there is a quite a volume of, of research now that's out validating the heart score um, in different populations, including some meta-analyses as well. Why is it that you and your fellow authors chose to pursue this particular analysis that you did? So again, I think part of it, again, is, is being framed of, of being here in, in Ottawa. Dr. Steele, I think in the late 90s, and, and uh, Dr. George Wells here at Ottawa published kind of like the Bible for how you create a clinical decision instrument. It was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, where they looked at all of the steps that you need to, to do when you create a clinical decision instrument. And then the first thing is, you know, you show that there's a problem, uh, which we know this is a problem. And then the second thing is you show that, well, there's varied practice in emergency medicine, which we certainly know there's varied practice. Um, and the next step then is doing a derivation cohort. So you, you know, use either a retrospective or preferably prospective cohort, and then you create your decision instrument based on the common characteristics that are predictive of the outcome in that population. 
And what is interesting about the heart score is there was no derivation cohort ever. Um, in fact, what happened was Dr. Jacob Six and Dr. Barbara Backus, widely known as the creators of the, the heart score, kind of just sat down one day and said, well, these are the, the things that we think predict whether a patient's going to have a MACE event in six, in six days. And it fit nicely with the acronym, and they just kind of started testing it and found that it worked. But they never actually did a derivation cohort um, to say these are the factors that are really common. They, they just This made intuitive sense to them. And so the next step after you derive your tool is you prospectively validate it. And so what we thought was, you know, we're using this tool pretty frequently. It's rising to prominence pretty frequently, uh, pretty quickly. Let's see how well it performs. And, and so that's why we chose to do, to look at the overall prognostic accuracy in, in the short term. And I use the word short term specifically because some of the studies said, well, short term is six weeks. Some of them said 30 days. Um, and so we ended up pooling all of them together. Uh, but it shows you, you know, that that was a reason uh, for our, for the re- for why we did it was we thought, you know, this tool that's so widely accepted and widely used in emergency medicine has actually never gone through the proper steps uh, for derivation of a decision instrument. And so we wanted to see, well, does it really uh, perform as well as we think it does and as well uh, as it should if it's going to be used uh, as commonly as it as it is? And that's that was really the the reasoning behind the study. Great. Great. And would you mind sharing with us a little bit about what you what you folks found? So uh, we ultimately ended up including uh, 30 studies. Uh, altogether, there is about close to 45,000 patients in the analysis, which is the benefit of meta-analysis, right? I mean, you, you when you pool together, you're allowed to expand your sample size. And mm-hmm. the problem with the heart score is it's really tough to gather that from a chart review, right? I mean, unless somebody's charted all these aspects or specifically charted a heart score, um, it's a really tough thing to do in individual studies, and you'll notice most of the studies had, you know, 500 to mostly at most a thousand-ish patients. So meta-analysis allows you to to add all of them up. So we had about 45,000, and so we really were interested in looking at sensitivity and specificity. Now, this is a, a was a really really controversial point because if you're looking at a prognostic tool and not a diagnostic test do you really care about sensitivity and specificity? Because what you should really be looking at, or if you're looking at prognosis, is what are the odds or the odds ratio mm-hmm. and the pooled odds ratios. We thought about, well, how is the heart score used in clinical practice? Well, the truth is if it, it's pro- predominantly used by an emergency physician, and what he or she is trying to do is they're trying to answer the question, as I mentioned, is, is this patient going to need further testing down the road? And an odds ratio of two or three is not really helpful. Uh, but a sensitivity that's extremely high tells you that if the patient you know, doesn't meet criteria, uh, then the likelihood of them having an event is low. And in fact, if you look at most of the studies we included, most of the studies present sensitivity and specificity, even though, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a prognostic tool. And it just speaks to the way that it's used. So when we meta-analyzed, we meta-analyzed sensitivity and specificity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still presented the odds ratios, but we emphasized, you know, this is how it's used clinically. Mm-hmm. Uh, a test that's 99% sensitive is more useful to you as a clinician in emergency medicine than a test that has an odds ratio of four. Like, I don't, it's really hard to, to apply that. Yeah. Um, so what we found is when we looked at the, the heart score above the low risk threshold, which is a score of four or more, the sensitivity was 95.9% uh, for predicting um, for predicting MACE, which is another way of saying that the false negative rate is about 4%. Um, and the specificity, which is, again, less important in this case, is 44.6% for MACE. Mm-hmm. When we looked at the high-risk heart score, which is a score of 7 or more, the sensitivity is low. It's 39.5%, but the specificity is 95%. And we compared the heart score to the, the TIMI score, or the thrombolysis and myocardial infarction score, which is 
probably the next, probably had been prior to this point, the most popular tool for risk stratification of these patients. Mm -hmm. And we found that the uh, TIMI above its low risk threshold of two or more had a sensitivity of 87.8%. So when you compare that to the sensitivity of the heart score of 95.9%, you can see that the heart score is, is superior uh, in terms of sensitivity uh, specific, uh, particularly. And then if you look at a high risk TIMI score greater than or equal to six, which is pretty high of a TIMI score, um, your, your specificity is 99.6% for MACE. So, you know, if you had a Timmy score that is particularly high, you know that patient's going to have a major adverse cardiac event almost surely uh, within the next six weeks. So I think overall, this study gives you a really good impression of how these two tools perform when you're trying to make that critical decision of, am I going to send this patient for further testing? Um, or do they need to even, depending on your resources, be admitted uh, for further testing? Fantastic. Now, now, we spoke just a few minutes ago about what components MACE comprises. And I noticed in your study um, of particular interest that you pulled some of those endpoints out uh, separately and analyzed them. Could you tell us a little bit about that decision? Yeah. So I, I guess it's kind of the cynic in me. And then what we were talking about earlier that I'm not a huge fan of composite outcomes. I understand why they're used. Um, but especially in the cardiology literature, the, the the whole outcome of MACE, a lot of people have found has been driven by PCI. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, depending on where you work, again, the cardiologists don't have, you know, a super high threshold for going through with PCI. And the truth is, if you're a patient and you're sitting there in the emergency department and you've showed up, you know, pretty scared that you're having chest pain. And you're trying to figure out, you know, what's the, you're not really worried of, am I going to need a, a stent, you know, in six weeks? You're worried, am I going to die or am I going to have a heart attack in the next six weeks? And yeah. those are truly more patient-centered, I think, yeah. outcomes. And so what we said is, well, we recognize that most of these studies looked at MACE, um, but we were fortunate that many of the studies included actually broke it down, broke down the MACE uh, composite, and they looked specifically at how well does it predict uh, death and MI. And what we found was actually the sensitivity was higher. Um, when you look at predicting death or MI, which actually should reassure you uh, when you're using the heart score that the cases that you're missing with the heart score are more likely to probably be statistically more likely to be cases of patients who ultimately require revascularization as opposed to patients who die or go on to have MI in the short term, mm -hmm. which again, is not ideal. You mean, you certainly don't want to find out that your patient went home and then came back three days later and had, a, had PCI done for whatever unstable angina or whatnot. But it's different than finding out that your patient came back three days later with an MI or your patient went home and died three mm -hmm. days later. So, mm -hmm. so I, I thought it was really important to look at how, uh, those, how those individual aspects of the composite perform, particularly because the existing literature seems to suggest in composite outcomes, specifically as it pertains to MACE, it's largely driven by revascularization, which certainly is important, but mm -hmm. is less patient-centered, I think, than death and MI. Sure. And do you think that that 30-day to six-week time frame is the right time frame from an emergency medicine standpoint? It, it's, a hard, it's a hard question. And I think it's largely going to be determined by your, your resources and what's available to you. I think, you know, going back to what we were saying about sensitivity versus mm -hmm. odds ratios and mm -hmm. like the, the use of these tools is largely really dependent on the setting that you work in, right? I can say, you know, my other hat is uh, I'm an ICU fellow and I work in the ICU and we prefer tools usually that are more specific. Because if a tool is very specific and a patient meets that tool mm -hmm. uh, or meets that rule or whatever, then, you know, it, it changes what, you know, are you going to escalate, you know, uh, care very quickly? Or are you going to have a meeting with the family and or the patient and say, you know, this is really bad, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the emergency department, we really care more about sensitivity. And, and Dr. Steele will tell you most of his, his tools have been derived for the purposes of maximizing sensitivity because while a false positive is, is bad, obviously, that means a patient who, you know, gets testing when they don't need it. 
a false negative is worse in our line of work because it's a patient who you sent home who went on to have, you know have a subarachnoid hemorrhage or uh, had a really bad head injury or in the case of uh, the heart score had a major adverse cardiac event is, is what we say in emergency medicine is you know we don't play to win we play to not lose <laughs> and that's kind of the idea right i mean you care more about about sensitivity and so um I think that's that's what largely the the way we structure this review is based upon you know the setting that you know and the 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 audience and that's why we went to an emergency medicine journal with it was we said you know these are the people who are going to use this score and these are the yeah. people who are going to care about these characteristics in particular. Fantastic. Uh, with respect to this study and and limitations in particular, um, I, I noticed as I was reading through it that. Some and and you guys commented on this as well. Some number of the studies that were included were judged to be high risk for bias. Um, can you speak a little bit to to that limitation and how it may or may not have affected your results? Yeah, again, I'm kind of a, a purist when it comes to systematic review meta analysis, and that I, I I know that every study is it's largely required now by any guideline that you have to include a risk of bias assessment because mm -hmm. obviously if your study is made up of of uh, your meta analysis made up of studies that are largely high risk of bias, that's a problem. But I, I'm really of the mind that you need to do a separate analysis afterwards that excludes the studies that were at high risk of bias to see, you know, did the results change substantially? Sure. Are they driven sure. by those studies that are high risk of bias? And so we were pretty stringent in what we called high risk of bias. In fact, most of the studies that were considered unclear risk or a high risk of bias were because the, it wasn't clearly stated in the study whether the people who scored the, the patients were, were blinded to the outcomes. So, you know, whether they calculated from chart review, the ideal way to do it is the person calculating it, he or she should be blinded to whether that patient had a MACE event. And, and I, I figure that in most of the case, that's probably true. But unless you state it specifically in the study, we don't know. And so if you don't, then we count that as, a, you know, unclear risk of bias or high risk of bias. And what we did was we did exactly, as I said, that separate analysis, removing those studies. Um, and we were fortunate that we were still had enough studies that we could still meta-analyze appropriately. And it didn't really change our, our outcome. So absolutely, I think, you know, it's really, really important to be very upfront and clear about, and that's part of going through these studies very closely and, and seeing what, you know, how, 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 what is the risk of bias. But I think you really need to do that separate analysis. And, and it gave us more confidence in the overall results that what we were seeing was real. Great. And, and I guess one last question, if, if you could give our listeners a take-home message, what would be that one takeaway you'd like those folks to walk away with today after listening to the podcast? So I think, you know, in emergency medicine, like I said, the hardest part of this job, and I don't think it's appreciated enough by others in medicine, is, is disposition. It's making the decision to send somebody home, knowing that you're never going to be 100% sure that nothing bad is going to happen to them. And that's why tools like clinical decision instruments are important. Uh, and that's where the heart score has the most important benefit. But I think what everyone should know is that there are really, really big limitations with the heart score. There's a lot of evidence that's now coming out showing that there's pretty significant variability in how people actually calculate the heart score, mm -hmm. which is a little bit concerning because ideally, as, as Dr. Steele would say, the, a, a, a clinical decision instrument should, you know, have objective criteria um, because then, you know, there shouldn't be any variability because as soon as you introduce subjective criteria, like is this history high risk or not, um, you know, things like that, and then you, you it cause variability in the scoring, which is, is concerning. The other major aspect uh, of the heart score is it's not really clear how well the heart score performs compared to clinical Gestalt. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is if you look at most of the literature on ACS and you ask people, well, what's the, what is the acceptable miss rate 
for you know ACS or future ACS or acute or, or MACE, most people will say at most you can miss about two percent. If you apply the heart score stringently, completely blindly, without any clinical gestalt, and like I said, I think that's pretty rare. But let's say you did that, you'd miss about four percent. Right, right, right. Um, which is above, which is certainly higher than what would be appropriate. And one of the comments that the reviewers made, which I thought was, was quite a brilliant comment, we touched on it in the study, is mm-hmm. he or she said, you know, I use uh, the, the heart score, but I use the heart score to influence my, my, my pre-test probability or my clinical gestalt. The problem is my pre-test probability, my clinical gestalt is made up by the components of the heart score. <laughs> I'm looking to see if this is, his, you know, how the history, what's the history, you know, is the troponin high, is the, is the ECG high, the risk factors, et cetera. And then I apply the heart score, but the truth is, when I'm doing that, I'm just compounding my own clinical gestalt, right? Like if, so the, you think they're low, low risk by your clinical gestalt, then you add the heart score and they're even lower risk. It, it's not really appropriate. Right. And so I think while the heart score is useful and particularly in areas where, you know, people may not have the training to, to recognize ACS, I really would be cautious of judging it above your own clinical gestalt mm-hmm. because one of the things that it shows what we've seen repeatedly, and I think what this study confirms is that the miss rate uh, with using the score in and of itself is higher than what would be acceptable mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in the general public. So while this score is useful, I would be careful with using it to re- re- replace what is your strongest tool as an emergency physician, which is your clinical gestalt and your ability to decide that, you know what, I don't care what this instrument says, this patient I feel is at risk and needs to stay or this patient needs testing. So I would caution clinicians because this is a, a score that has had really good uptake, and I, I'm glad to see that for sure. But I would caution clinicians uh, in using it uh, as a replacement for uh, your greatest asset as an emergency physician, which is your clinical gestalt. Fantastic. Well, you heard it here, folks. More evidence for the use of the heart score in conjunction with your clinical gestalt. Dr. Fernando, thank you very much for coming on to the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Zach. Thanks so much for you guys for having me on. It was a a real pleasure again to be on. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to this AEM Early Access Podcast. Make sure to hit the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.